Bibles, and we will read scripture together momentarily. Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 27, that's where we'll begin. That's page 1106-1106 in your pew Bible, Acts 21, verse 27. Now, I have to open by telling you that this is, I confess, a do-over. Well, sort of. I came away from last week's message feeling as though there were things that needed to be said that didn't get said. And it started with the way I butchered the scripture reading, right, Adrian? Hey, I thank you for plugging the Echo podcast. Adrian and I have been talking about doing that for a long time, and we finally got started and uh, I'll tell you, she's a whiz. She is so much fun to talk to. And really, uh, what a combination is this old gray-bearded guy who's been walking with Jesus for a long talk- time, talking with somebody who's relatively new on the journey with Christ and, and, uh, and yet who's on fire with the Holy Spirit. And the things we talk about and the depth that we, we attain is really, really remarkable. And uh, so I do hope you'll listen with us. But uh, Adrian has, in some ways, in the process of our discussions, shaped the process of this sermon preparation. And so I came back to this topic in part because of Adrian and also from, uh, in part because of my daughter, Bethany, who's another one of my favorite conversationalists. And frankly, I've been talking with her a lot longer. And uh, she, uh, she, Bethany told me last week, she said, well, Dan, if you don't feel, Dad, if you don't feel like you're comfortable with this, then just do it again. And I said, well, all right. I guess we can do that. Our apologies to Bartholomew. He was supposed to get noticed today, but uh, we'll pick up with him some other time. Maybe next March, I'll say, you remember when we were going to talk about Bartholomew? So anyway, I want to read this passage in its entirety rather than in the way that I did last week and come back to the Apostle Paul as we talked about him last week, we covered some really important things, but there are other parts of the story that I really want us to revisit because you'll recall that our purpose in studying the apostolic tradition is to learn about their discipleship and their process of discipling others. We're trying to emulate them so that we can be the body of Christ in motion during our times and that we can be disciple makers and disciple seekers in our time. Uh, We have to get back into the business of seeking disciples for Jesus Christ. We have to get into the business of sharing what changed our lives so that it can change other people's lives because otherwise there won't be enough of us left to keep the doors open. Um, You know, Have you noticed that a lot of the fraternal clubs, the American Legions, the FOE, the the various uh, uh, odd fellows, you know, there's all kinds of of, uh, organizations that used to be very popular 100 years ago that are all dying off now because people don't socialize like that anymore. And if that's all church is, then we're going the same way. If, on the other hand, we're in the business of being disciples of Jesus Christ, seeking disciples of Jesus Christ, and changing the world according to his Holy Spirit, then we're on to something that never goes out of style. 
That's why we're doing this. So let's read again about what happened to the Apostle Paul, Acts 21, starting at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, Paul, crying out, men of Israel, help. This man who is, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of the, uh, and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Ephesian with him in the city. I should have read those before I got up here today. Yeah, anyway, they, he brought them to the temple and that's why he got in trouble. Then all the city was stirred up in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple and then the city was stirred up. Yeah, we'll get there. I'm not gonna butcher this one, Adrian, and I'm butchering it anyway. They seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple at once. The gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in a confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to him. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up the revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing in the Hebrew, stand, yeah, addressed, <laughs> I think it's time for a new prescription. Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there were, was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there 
and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told what uh, all that is appointed to you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from, this, from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, why did I read all of that? Well, and so poorly. I read all of that because I wanted to better set the stage for the things that we are trying to extract from this, this uh, word from God today about the Apostle Paul. What do you make of that situation? What do you do with that situation? Well, let's see. First of all, Paul went to Jerusalem even though Jesus said, that's not a good idea. You hear that? First thing that happened was he went to Jerusalem even though he was told that it wouldn't go well. Surprise, surprise, it didn't go well. But what else happened? Well, they were angry with him. Now, I want you to think about what they were angry with him about. Because this is the question Adrian asked me for the podcast last week. Like, I went back, she said, and I read the rest of that story to understand why they would be so angry that they would say, we need to kill this guy, he doesn't deserve to live. Now, last week, I was really motivated by the idea that this is how vehemently people feel about those with whom they disagree. Like, we have people in our society right now that would like to eliminate you from society 
figuratively or literally, because as far as they have assumed, you represent something that they consider hatred. And why? Because you chose to be a part of a denomination that split from another denomination so that you could maintain a certain set of standards that you believe. Now there's way more to the story than that, but my point is, is simply by being loosely associated with an idea that some people disapprove of, those same people have taken a violent approach in thought to you. They've decided that you need to be protested, you need to be rejected, you need to be canceled. And this is exactly what happened to Paul, right? So I'm not trying to make this about that, I'm trying to make that about this. I'm just checking to see if anybody's snickering about that. Because <laughs> Paul is in a situation where they're angry with him because of what they think they know about him. Do you see that? The first thing that happened in this story is there's a whole lot of people that are really angry with him because they've heard that he let Greeks come into the sacred space around the temple. And what's more is he's a Roman citizen going by a Roman name, so they're not even sure about him. So there's a whole lot of people. Here, here's the timeline. From the time that Paul was busy himself persecuting Christians, from that time until this moment that we just read about, around 11 to 14 years has passed. So he was out there persecuting. He, last time he was seen around Jerusalem, he was a hero because he was leading the movement against Christians. And then he gets on this Damascus Road experience and then his transformation begins. And then he goes into seclusion in Antioch and places like that where he is being mentored into his new existence as the Apostle Paul or the Christian believer that he was to become. Now he's back in Jerusalem and there are two kinds of people there, people who don't remember him and people who do. And the people in the temple area around Jerusalem who don't remember him, all they know is, is this is the Roman guy who brought Greeks into the sacred territory. And they're really angry. They are furious about this. They hate him because of guilt by assumption. You ever heard that old saying about what happens when you assume? Well, don't worry, I'm not gonna say it up here in the pulpit on the internet and everything, but it's a rather colorful statement. And that's what happens when we assume. We make a lot of unnecessary trouble for ourselves and others because we didn't bother to get the facts because we liked what we were hearing and decided to accept it as truth because it fit our feelings. And feelings aren't nearly as reliable as facts. And feelings can change and feelings can, can stir up other feelings and, and we can get into a feelings frenzy with others. It's not unlike a blood frenzy when the sharks, you know, start gathering around something in the water. And so we get into these frenzies of feelings and it doesn't even matter at that point what's true. We're just comfortable 
reacting to the things we want to be true. And so it was with Paul. This was the guy who came back after being absent for so long. And rumor had it that he was, he was a friend to the Gentiles. And the Jews would have nothing of that. And you know what happened in Jerusalem at the time is that the, the situation where, you know, so if you, you have the benefit of, of uh, historical hindsight, they don't know it yet, but they're just a couple of decades away from the utter destruction of Jerusalem. They don't know it yet, but they're on the verge of having pushed the Romans so far that the Romans retaliate violently. They bring down the superpower on the city of Jerusalem, and there's a siege that is horrific that is followed by the utter destruction of Jerusalem. And this all happens around 68 to 70. And in the meantime, the situation is deteriorating. And the political parties are becoming more and more polarized and religion is becoming more politics than spirituality. And so all this stuff is happening in Jerusalem at the time is very similar to what we see in our country right now, isn't it? There is this this polarization that's going on. And Paul has entered himself right into the midst of what used to be familiar and safe territory, and now it's hostile territory, very hostile. And there are people who are very angry with him for what they think they know about him. And he thinks, well, all I got to do is set the record straight. Have you ever wondered if that would fix some of the things that you see happening around our society? Well, if these people would just shut up long enough for me to tell them the way it really is, we could get this settled. Do they ever shut up? No. I'm getting to a point, though. I promise you we're going to get this thing figured out as much as we can. They don't. They just yell louder because they've already decided that you shouldn't be heard. They've already decided that whatever it is you have to say isn't worthy of consideration, so they shout you down. And if it hadn't been for the intervention of the Roman military, Paul wouldn't have had a chance to share his testimony. But as it is, he is allowed to share his testimony. And he utterly shocks the crowd of younger people who didn't know him 11 years earlier by speaking their native language. So he's got their attention for a couple of minutes because he's speaking their language. And he proceeds to tell this story of how he changed from being like them to being a thoroughly devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And as soon as he gets done telling that story, they go nuts and they're ready to kill him on the spot. Why? Because now he's added to the rumors about him a fact that they cannot take. He has made himself a total betrayer. He has completely betrayed the, is the people of Jerusalem, the Israel, uh, the religion of Israel. He's betrayed it. 
completely, as far as they are concerned, he has admitted that he had his mind changed, that he had his ideas about God and the Torah and the traditions of the people. He's had that changed and he's admitted it. And they consider that a complete betrayal. How? How could anyone be so swayed by this religion, this movement, these strange people with their belief in a man who raises himself from the dead, and, and on and on it goes. And what you realize is, is that the people that are angry with him and want to kill him are more committed to their ideology than they are to truth. They are more committed to the feelings that inform their behavior than they are the facts. And Paul has just crossed a line with them because he's presented them with something that because of its plausibility, they have to make a decision. Am I going to believe this? And if I believe this, then will people hate me the way they hate him? And in an instant, they're making decisions about their future. And of course, they're in a crowd that is worked up into a frenzy. It's a mob. It is, in effect, a lynch mob. Okay, so this is the picture. And I don't know about you, but I see all kinds of eerie similarities in this situation to the times we're living in. But it really hasn't suddenly become that way. This has always been part of the human condition. This has always been part of societies and communities. This is why we have the rule of law. This is why we have government when it's done well and, and, and done in a, in a morally sound way. The government and the law enforcement are all here to help prevent such crazy things. But we've got a new situation in our times that is almost impossible to control, and it's the internet. Now mobs gather online and destroy people. In effigy, at least, they destroy you by canceling you. They destroy you by spreading rumors about you and saying things that aren't true and so on. And this is the way that those things are happening now. Now, the question that we want to answer with the last few minutes of our time is how do we bear witness to our relationship with Christ in times like these? How do we share our faith? Can we at first, let's, let's do this right now. I want every one of you just privately in your own thought, I want you to, to answer a question. I want you to be really honest because the only person that's going to know your answer is the Lord himself because we're not saying it out loud. Are you afraid to share your faith in Christ with others? Are you afraid to share your relationship with Christ with other people? And if you are, why? Well, look, if you were in Jerusalem that day, you'd be afraid to share your faith. 
If you were downtown on the square when people are protesting against what they think about you, you might be afraid to share your faith. So it's reasonable that we get scared of the prospect of sharing what we believe about Jesus Christ. As you can see, Paul was not frightened. I think he should have been because Jesus told him going in, you probably shouldn't do this. But in any case, he was not afraid to share his faith. But most of us are. It's natural. We don't want to be rejected. There's probably no fear that is more natural to human nature than the fear of rejection. We don't want to get voted off the island. We want to be loved and appreciated by the people around us. And so sometimes the hardest place to share your faith is in your own home. Sometimes the hardest people to talk to about your relationship with Christ is your spouse or your children or your parents. Because you don't want to be rejected by these people. You need those relationships and the fear of rejection is powerful. Same thing in the workplace and school and other parts of your life. Fear of rejection prevents you from sharing your faith in Christ because you don't want people to reject you and cast you out, to cancel you. And so what do you do? Well, the Apostle Paul was no doubt the product of prayer. Now, it doesn't really get said in Scripture in a, in a specific way, but the Apostle Paul is, for whatever reason, unique among the Pharisees who were said about the destruction of the Christian movement. I mean, did you ever stop and think, well, what, if Jesus hit him with the bolt of lightning and knocked him off his horse, he could have turned the heat up just a little bit and that would have been the end of that problem. You ever thought about that? I mean, he could have, as Dave Ramsey likes to say, he could have left a grease spot where Paul was, but he didn't. Instead, he's just given him a thump and so this is what I like to refer to as a paradigm shift of the two-by-four variety, right? You get the two-by-four upside the head, and then you get a different perspective on things. And the reality is, is people in our world who are really extreme usually don't respond to subtlety. And can I be honest with you, I spent most of my career in ministry trying to be subtle and thinking that that made me diplomatic. And it's just been in the last decade or so, the last five years especially, not to make it about Shiloh, but just in my mind of, of you know, being an adult Christian in a world of church people, I've asked myself, what has subtlety gotten me? Not as much as directness has, I can tell you that. It just takes a lot more courage to be direct because you will be rejected. There will be people who will say to your directness, well, that's not very Christian. Well, of course it's not because Christians are nice and subtle and they don't stir anybody up. Wait a minute, did you just read about the Apostle Paul where he stirred everybody up? He had that place into a world-class frenzy. The Romans were afraid that the whole place was gonna come down. 
I'm not suggesting that we go that far, but let's face it, being subtle and nice, it's not getting it done. It's not getting it done. What we need to learn from the Apostle Paul is, is you got to tell truth in love. And that means that grace will be for many people, the two by four upside the head that gives them a paradigm shift. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, quite simply, you can't violently oppose people who are violently opposed to you. They're ready for that. What you have to do to shake them up is something completely unexpected. You have to do something completely unexpected. And I'll tell you what the world needs more of now than ever in my lifetime, it's grace. Grace is the unexpected two by four paradigm shift. When people are violently opposed to you or prepared to reject you because you openly embrace your relationship with Jesus Christ, you have to respond in grace and watch how it undoes them. I had a conversation with a nice couple here a few weeks ago where I mentioned that one of my favorite methods of dealing with people who are really wound up, whose minds are not going to be changed and they're not going to listen, is to smile politely at them and when they get done and they run out of gas, and boy, it takes some people a long time to run out of gas, to smile at them and say, I feel sorry for you. I really feel sorry for you. Now you talk about a two by four that gets their attention. They don't know what to say to that. And the first thing they almost always say is, I don't need your pity. Why would you feel sorry for me? And this is where you really get them. You ready? You ready? I want to write this down. You smile and say, I just feel sorry for you. And darn it, there's nothing you can do about it. I'm going to feel sorry for you because that's how I feel. <laughs> it is so utterly disarming. It's incredible. And in case you think I'm trying to give you a way to get back at people, that's not the point at all. This isn't about sales techniques or anything else. The point that I'm trying to make is, is that you disarm the enemy of God by doing the one thing the enemy of God cannot resist, the grace of God. Do you see that? Do you realize that the cross looked like a victory to the enemy of God until it was revealed that the cross was God's act of grace? <laughs> that it was God's victory because it was the ultimate expression of grace and it's the grace that gets us all into heaven if we'll just accept it. The enemy thought he won because he killed the son of God. And then the enemy was undone because it was the son of God who gave himself up as an act of grace for a bunch of people who don't even know him yet. He was thinking of you when he died on the cross. This is what changed Paul. This is what changed Paul. The paradigm shift 
comes when people are undone by grace. Now, I want to wrap this up as quickly as I can here because there's a point that I want to leave you with. And it's this. The Apostle Paul became a brilliant evangelist to Jews and Gentiles alike. But he was particularly effective with Gentiles. And you know why? Because Jews had no grace for them at all. Remember what we read at the beginning? There was no grace for people outside of the Judaism from which Paul emerged. And so in order to save the people of Jerusalem and the Jews, he preached to the Gentiles and he preached grace. So I want to give you a challenge. When we think about how we want to do evangelism and outreach in this family of faith, first you have to have the courage to share your faith and risk rejection. It'll be okay. You won't die. You might even ask yourself from time to time, why did I fear that person's rejection? Be honest, my life's better now that they're not in it. Can we be honest? What we need is a clear vision for evangelism. And I would like to share this vision with you. Shiloh's disciples will embrace a deep and wide relationship with the master, with a capital M, and encourage others to join us in obedience to him. So it's deep because it's deeply rooted in the scripture, in the Holy Spirit, but it's wide because there's room. Now here's the mission. We will make wide and easily accessible entryways for all who seek grace and truth. And we will make and embark on them ourselves as we journey a discipleship pathway towards personal holiness which is narrow at the other end. So what does that mean? It means the front doors of this church should be wide and everybody who wants to come through should be made welcome. But for the sake of Christ, we will endeavor to find our way down the narrow passage that leads to a holiness that is imitation of Jesus Christ. So this is what the Apostle Paul did. He was wide open at one end, like a funnel, but he was shaping people through discipline, which is where we get the word discipleship, which is where we get our idea of doctrine, so that they came out being united around some very specific truths. This should be our model for evangelism. And the only way it's gonna work, if it's gonna be wide enough to catch everybody at the open end, is if we all are part of it. So all of us need to share our testimony in one way or another. And you can start by practicing on your family. They might laugh at you or something, but they won't, they won't abandon you. They won't abandon you, so don't be afraid of being rejected. You know, see, that's the thing that we forget. I used to sell things for a living, so I learned this. People say no to what you're selling, not you. 
Same thing with your loved ones. They're not saying no to you. They're saying no to the idea that you're presenting them with. So you get to come back and try again. Just keep trying. What else are you going to do with the rest of your life? Watch TV? Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you. Please burn upon our hearts your word so that we are trained and changed by you and your Holy Spirit. Amen.